One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they did not know where he came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son and perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is, the, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is written? What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that they had told this parable against them but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling. In his answer, they became silent. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray again.
our gracious God, gracious, gracious God, and our most loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we do indeed now come again to hear you. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who has always spoken. You spoke and creation came into existence. You spoke through your law. You spoke through your prophets. And in these last days, you've spoken through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, again, we ask that you would come and you would speak and that we would listen and that we would be changed and that we would leave here desiring to share the good news of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning again, Chapel Street. I neglected to say good morning to the folks online. And uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to those listening on the podcast. Uh, we're back in Luke, and we're now in the stage in Luke where the Lord is preparing in the last days to go to the cross. He set his face, I think in the King James, it says, like flint, the great determination, as we've heard today in communion. He's about to go that way, I think, in just a few days. And the, I like to say the temperature, the volume, if you will, is being turned up. Christ is making a little more clearly the message of the gospel known. And here for the first time, he engages directly with the chief priests, with the scribes and with the um, elders. And there are Pharisees there. There are people that believe that by obeying the law to the utmost, they will be declared righteous and saved. So he's engaging with them and they're keen to catch him out because he's just done something extraordinary. Remember last week? He cleansed the temple. And I see that as a supernatural event. Imagine you going into a place with several thousand people with a whip and getting them out. It's not going to happen, right? But Christ makes it happen because he is God and has that kind of power. And so the chief priests are annoyed. What authority does this man do this by? And so they bail him up. They go and chat to him and say, look, what are you doing? What authority do you do this stuff? You know, we're chief priests, we're elders, we're scribes. Who are you? And his wisdom is begot from Christ. He answers the question with a question. <laughs> it's a very good thing to do, especially if uh, you want to confound people, turn it back and ask them a question. And what comes out of that little discourse is that the chief priests, the men of uh, great repute, the leaders of Israel at the time, fear man. They don't fear God. And God's standing in their midst, in the person of Jesus Christ, and they fear mankind. This whole section is really about the authority, the respect, and the honor of God and how Israel had neglected to recognize God's authority, neglected to respect and to honor him. And ultimately, it's about rejecting Christ. There is nothing in life more serious than accepting or rejecting Christ. So we're going to focus largely on this parable of the vineyard. I'm going to break it down and 
um, hopefully we'll see and hopefully it'll be an encouragement to us do not think that this text is just for israel it is but it's for us too and you'll hopefully see why as we go through it so in response to this the lord tells a parable it's a parable about a vineyard and an owner who plants a vineyard and then leaves to go to another country for a, a long time and so he leaves or he lets, if you will, the vineyard out to tenants. And their job as tenants is to tend the vineyard, to grow the fruit. And at the right time, and I understand this is a normal practice, the owner of a farm or a vineyard that's been let out to others goes and asks for some of the produce, some of the harvest, some of the fruit. Apparently that's normal. And so that's what happens. The owner of the vineyard sends servants. Go and get some fruit from that vineyard that I planted and let to these tenants. And so they go. What happens? They're sent away empty-handed. They're not given anything other than a beating. They're treated shamefully. Three times <laughs> the owner sends the servants. And three times... They come back, back empty-handed and beaten up. So the owner says, hey, well, this is obviously not working. I'll send my own son because they respect him. He's the son of the owner of the vineyard. They'll respect him. And so the son goes and they say, hey, look, here comes the heir, the son of the owner of the vineyard. And they should have said, let's give him the fruit. <laughs> He's the son. Let's give it to him. But instead they say, let's drag him out and let's kill him. That's exactly what happens in the story. So Jesus interrupts, doesn't he, his little parable. And he says to these religious rulers and leaders that are there, what do you think the owner will do? <laughs> the tenants have killed his son. What do you think that the owner will do? And I tell you. He'll destroy the tenants and he'll give the vineyard to other people. That is the simple rendering of the parable. We obviously need to dig deeper and understand why the Lord has shared this particular parable with these leaders. What I want to say to you is that fundamentally, this parable is simply about Israel not recognizing the authority of the God that at the time they claimed to serve and rejecting him, rejecting the Messiah who stands before them, telling them this parable about how Israel rejected the real king. So let's unpack it a little bit. And we've got to be careful. I always say this about parables. We don't want to read too much into them. We don't want to dissect every dot and tittle of a parable because it's a parable, it's parabolic, there's a general meaning in it. If we do that too much, then we will come out with all sorts of weird things. But at the same time, we need to be careful not to put too or draw too little out of it. All right, we want to treat it as if it's very, very compact and that we can't get truth out of it. First thing I want to say is that in order to really understand this parable, we need to understand the context of a vineyard. The Old Testament, there are very many different metaphors 
for Israel. And one of them is the vineyard. Think of the Lord Jesus in John saying, I am the true vine. He's referring to the vineyard. He's referring to the people of God. He says, I'm the real one. I'm the true one. So it's an image. It's imagery for Israel. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, says Isaiah. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Do you hear that? The vineyard of the Lord is Israel, the house of Israel. And the vines are the men and the women, the people of Israel. There is pleasant planting. He's planting Israel, the people, and desiring to grow it. Look, this context that the Lord is speaking into is not lost on these chief priests. They don't say, well, what is he talking about? <laughs> they get it. They get it very, very quickly and very simply. So let's try and get it a little bit more. We've got a planter, someone who plants the vine and owns the, the vineyard. It's God. That's who he's referring to. The one who owns the vineyard is God, and he's the one that has planted it. You can go right back to Abraham if you want and see how he's done that. See how he's pulled that together, made that work amongst a rebellious people. The vineyard, as I've already said, is the children of Israel. And the tenants, who are the tenants? Well, guess what? They're the religious leaders. <laughs> That's why the chief priests and the scribes and the elders get this story. The people that were meant to tend to the vine, to grow the vine, to grow the people of Israel such that they bore fruit. And what kind of fruit would it be? Worshipping God, loving God. Those tenants, those religious rulers had neglected their job. And I don't know how many times uh, you can read it, but you can read it over and over and over and over and over again. You know where you read it most in the Old Testament? The prophets. The prophets. Read Jeremiah. Read Isaiah. Read them all. God sent the prophets to call Israel over and over and over again to repentance. You're not worshipping God. You know, God is holy. You know, we've got a temple. What are you doing? You're following yourself. You're showing no respect or honor to the one who has authority. And so guess what? The prophets are the servants. So the owner, God, sends his servants to the vineyard, to the people of Israel, to call them to repent, to get some of the fruit. We want to honor God. Let's bear fruit. The religious rulers of the day treated the prophets shamefully. The kings treated them shamefully. The people treated them shamefully. They were stoned. They rejected. They were thrown into pits, into wells. Read about the prophets. It wasn't a great life being a prophet. It was hard. It was brutal. They went faithfully, didn't they? They called people to repent. Repent. Where's the fruit? We're the vineyard of God. Where's the fruit? And then... As if that wasn't enough, God sends his, and did you notice the text? Beloved son. Not just his only son, beloved son. Does that cause you to think about any other scriptures? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
sends his own son to call people to repent. And so at that point in the parable, the Lord has told a historical picture, right? Story, the reality of the Old Testament, right up to the point where the son comes. And he's the son. Amazing, he's put himself in this parable, isn't he? And then he gives a prophetic word, doesn't he? They're going to kill the son. And I'm the son. Did you notice in the text, it said, let's take him out of the vineyard and kill him. There's a picture there that's really important. In Jewish law and custom, you don't, um, you don't kill people by and large. But if you kill them in your vineyard, guess what happens to your vineyard? It becomes defiled. You can't sell the fruit. You can't eat the fruit. They take him out. And think of Jesus taken out of the city of Jerusalem. There's a similar kind of imagery going on there. And so he's talking about his own death, which is merely days away. And so here's that picture of Israel just not tending to the vine. These religious rulers and leaders had moved into this picture of we will be holy ourselves. We will obey the law ourselves. We will be righteous ourselves. They misunderstood the whole point of the law. They thought the law was there to say, hey, you need to obey, um, obey with this and do this. And when if you do this, the law will be good. You'll be righteous. You'll please God. What the law was there was to condemn humankind, to prove that you couldn't obey God. So they just worked harder at it. You can understand Jesus in Matthew standing in his beloved city where the temple of God is or was, standing there, looking out at the people and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, to pull you together, like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The Lord says, see, your house, Israel, is left desolate to you. Now, I don't really know much about um, growing fruit. There are plenty of people here that can uh, tell me all about that, tell us all about that. There was a period in my life when I was very interested in botany, and I worked for a little nursery in England called Baldwin's Nursery. And the one thing I do remember about them is they had a vine. They, they were really grown camellias, but they had this one vine. It was in the glass house, and it went along the, the wires that were above um, the, the camellias. And once a year in autumn, when the leaves had fallen off uh, the vine, the job was to take, it was very long, to take this vine down uh, from one end, to leave one end up and the other end you'd, you'd bring right down and put on the ground. I just didn't know much about why we were doing that. So I asked one time, well, why do we do this? A bit strange. And the old uh, nurseryman said to me, well, this is the point when the sap that's left that hasn't gone into the fruit, but is still being drawn up by the roots will run down to the end of the tendrils so that next year we'll put it back up and those tendrils will be full of sap and will start to produce grapes early. It's a little picture of tending to a vine and they, 
they'd prune it and, and fit it up in spring. That's what the rulers of Israel should have done, taken care of the vine, worked out how to bear fruit for God, worked out how to worship God, to honor him, to recognize his authority, not challenge it, say we can do this ourselves. And so because the leaders had not tended the vine, the people had gone astray because they didn't recognize in their midst the Messiah, right there, standing there telling them this parable, the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for, <laughs> whose question they, whose authority they questioned when he arrived. So bad was it that they actually killed him because they didn't fear God, because they feared man. What a contrast to Palm Sunday, isn't it? What a contrast. The people are just praising God. Hosanna in the highest. The Lord is coming in on the donkey, going up the hill to Jerusalem, praising him. Now, they're questioning his authority and they're about to kill him. So Israel rejected Christ Jesus. They rejected his authority. They rejected his power, his personage, that's his status. They rejected him as the atoning sacrifice, and they rejected his kingship. But reject Jesus Christ at your peril. Because Jesus Christ's authority determines your eternal destination. Because his power is the power to save or condemn because his personage defines his status, the son and heir of God, the Lord, because his sacrifice is the only means of salvation in this world, because his kingship means that only he will rule in the end. Reject Jesus Christ at your peril. You know, sometimes the problem isn't that people haven't heard the gospel, Sometimes the problem is that people reject the God of the gospel. They reject him. Thanks for telling me that message. I don't want him. I know that's my mother. That's her current situation. I don't want your God, but why doesn't he save me? I don't want him. Not that they haven't heard it. Of course, many people haven't heard it. And that's why we go we follow that great commission. Jit and Jan go and others go. We involved in a commissioning service yesterday for some friends that are going to um, Central Asia. They're going. But some people, many people have heard it, but they reject the God of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's all about receiving him, isn't it? Not rejecting him. You want to become a Christian? You receive, <laughs> not reject as a gift. You receive a gift. You don't reject the gift. And all those that reject Jesus Christ will be judged. He says it himself. He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words, the gospel, has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. Well, what's the word that the Lord has spoken that will judge them? I'm God. I'm dying for the sins of the world. I have authority and power. I'm the king. I'm the Lord. It's me. Reject that at your peril. Like I said earlier, the chief priests, the scribes and the leaders, the elders, they got it. 
They, they knew what he was talking about straight away. There was no delay. There was no questioning. What do you mean when you say this? They got it. They totally got it loud and clear. Verse 19 and 20, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. Whoa, let's get him. Listen, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They feared the people. There it is again. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. That's exactly what they did. They missed their own Messiah. The one they've been waiting for. They missed him. It's right there, his daughter. They missed him. Many years ago, when I first moved uh, to Australia, um, I was trying to get home one night from Sydney, and I think there was some issue with the flights. And eventually I got the last flight. At this time to go and sit in the Qantas Club, and I went in the Qantas Club, probably looking a bit exhausted and fed up with life. And I noticed someone in the Qantas Club quite remarkable. Um, when I was a child, something of a hero to me, Elvis Presley. I thought, wow, that guy looks just like Elvis Presley. And he's even dressed in some of Elvis's kind of clothes, you know, a bit glittery and glitzy. That's, that's a bit weird. And then another strange coincidence, guess what? I saw another Elvis Presley. I thought, wow, what are the chances of seeing two Elvis Presleys at the same time? And then I saw another one. What is going on? I saw another one. I saw another one. Now, I did not know that Australia has the number one festival for Elvis Presley in the world. I knew nothing about, I think it's in Parks, if I remember correctly. I find that astonishing. Well done, Parks. But I had no idea. And I just looked at these Elvises and I thought, this is the single most bizarre thing I've ever seen. They all kind of worship Elvis. They love his music. And why not? But it occurred to me that perhaps if Elvis had been alive and he'd actually walked in with me to the Qantas Club that evening, they might not have noticed him. They were imitating him, weren't they? They were trying to impersonate their God, if you will, the one that they worshipped. And yet perhaps if he'd walked in, they wouldn't have noticed him. They would have missed, as it were, their Messiah, who was, of course, no Messiah at all. I feel like Israel's like that. It's easy for us to stand thousands of years later and look back and go, what was wrong with those people? Jesus was walking amongst them. But frankly, you'd have been the same. I want to try and encourage us as we move towards a close here. And I have a bit of scripture here. And it's good just to drink in scripture, perhaps texts that we know well. I want to ask the question, how does Jesus end this parable? Because <laughs> it's a little odd at that point. It sort of turns. It takes a little twist for the Jews, which is really relevant for us. Verse 17. Listen carefully to this. But he, Jesus, looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? Quoting Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Well, you see, the story always was 
that Israel would reject Christ. And Christ is the stone. He's the immovable, solid truth. And he becomes the cornerstone because on him and on the truth and on the gospel and on his lordship and kingship and authority is built the church. You, me, on this stone. And he's saying to them, you rejected it. God gave it to you and you rejected it. In fact, you trip over it now. You fall over it. It's a stumbling block to you. But to the others, the others that the owner of the vineyard gave the vineyard to, has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone being that stone which will hold the whole building together. Think of Peter. Who do you say I am? Peter confesses that he's Christ, the Messiah. You've spoken well, Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Rock, I will build my church. Sometimes, you know, there are churches that think the rock is Peter. <laughs> no, the rock is not Peter. Well, why would the Lord Jesus use that strange phrase? You've spoken well upon this rock. Well, you've spoken well upon this rock. Well, what did he speak? He spoke of the lordship of Christ. He spoke of the authority of Christ. That's the rock. That's the thing the Jews missed. We, what authority? You come here and cleanse the temple with Jesus? <laughs> well, I'm actually God. But it's part of the plan. Listen, John 1. He, referring to Jesus, came to his own. And his own people, the Jews, he came to the Jews. His own people, guess what, did not receive him. They rejected him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Born not by the will of man or flesh, born of God. Read Romans 8, we become co-inheritors with Christ, born as the children of God, adopted into, see all the themes in, in the gospel? Adopted into the family of God. He came to his own, but his own would not receive him. Listen, this is such good news for you, isn't it? Such good news for us. The good news, the vineyard was given to the others, was given to the Gentiles. Now the story is bigger than that. The Lord doesn't take it that far in this parable but the story is bigger something happens to the jews but i want to just give you a little taste of how amazing the story is that it moves from the old vineyard if you will to the new gentiles romans 11 the apostle paul interestingly i'll just pause i just thought of something it just hit me the Apostle Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of Jews. Concerning the law, he says, I'm blameless. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, a real thoroughbred of a Jew, a leader. He goes to the Gentiles. <laughs> is that extraordinary? He goes to the, he's sent to the Gentiles. That's his mission, a Jew. <laughs> because the gospel is for the Gentiles. It's for the Jews as well, we know. And all those first apostles were Jews. Romans 11, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. It was looking for the Messiah, but it failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, the church, obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a stupor, 
eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And he quotes David, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, says Paul, so I ask you, did they stumble in order that they might fall? No, no, no. Rather, through their sin, rejecting Christ, through their sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Did you know that? Through the rejection of Christ by Israel, salvation came to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? There's a massive message in that one line at the end. I haven't got time for it today, but it's big, it's huge. It talks about what God is going to do with Israel later. So I want to encourage you. The gospel came to you. The gospel that Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the son of the God, son of God, came to the vineyard. <laughs> and he died for the sins of the world. That he was buried. He was truly dead. It wasn't a joke. He didn't faint and pass out and come around later. A spear was run up through uh, his, under his ribs into his heart. Blood and water came out. He was really dead. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. That gospel came to you because Israel rejected it. This is God's plan. And so you became the bride of Christ. You became beautiful. You became holy, precious, white, pure. Adorned in white robes. Not because anything you did. Not because you're an Israelite. Not because you're some other nationality, Welsh, Scottish, English, French, Italian, wherever. Because Christ chose you. Because you responded in faith to the gospel, which would never have come if the Israelites had not rejected Christ. You're the bride of the son and the heir of the vine owner. Amen. Isn't that amazing? The church. And lastly, I want you to know that because of that, you are now the building blocks of the church because you are seated and being pruned and being grown to bear fruit on the cornerstone. And we'll end with this. I'm going to read this really slowly so that we can drink it in. This is First Peter. Now, Peter's talking to Christians in Asia Minor. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, a living stone, rejected by men, not men, Israel, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Amen? Isn't that incredible? You're, being, you're this living stone. You're being built up into a spiritual house to be what? 
holy. Well, what kind of holy? Do you know what he says? There's a priesthood. <laughs> it's the, like the chief priests, right? See what Peter's getting at? The scribes, the elder, you are becoming the priesthood in Christ to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, listen, this is so profound. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and listen, whoever believes in him, the stone, him, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, says Peter, because of the word that they disobey as they were destined to do. Peter's a Jew. He's talking about his countrymen. But you, Chapel Street Baptist Church, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are the holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy does that encourage you <laughs> the vine you grafted in well we could go on about it all day rejoice because you're the bride of christ you're beautiful i think you're beautiful just looking at you i don't know if you feel the same about me but i do i think you're wonderful because you're the church oh you're broken you got problems you got issues you're hurt from pain, we struggle with various things, but in Christ, you are holy, acceptable. You are the bride of Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our most loving Heavenly Father, we do indeed want to thank you and praise you. Well, we know that we did nothing of any good, of any merit, of any standing to be counted worthy in any way of being your children, of being co-heirs with Christ. And yet, Lord, in your great mercy, you didn't leave us in our darkness. You had a plan, Lord, that you would indeed bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so we want to thank you again today. We want to praise you, Lord. If any of us is in any way unsure of the security and hope that they have or should have in Christ, and I pray that you would humble them and cause them to see your son dying for them. Lord, if any of us is weak and frail and perhaps sliding away, falling back into sin, I pray, Lord, that they would know that Jesus is ready to receive them again. Forgiveness, as we've heard today, is, is, his work on the cross is finished. Full atonement. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And so, Lord, I pray as we go out of this place today, we would indeed desire to worship you, that we would be ready to be pruned and grown into that 
royal priesthood. How marvelous is that, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.